Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is Psalm 29, verse 2. Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. God's glory is the result of his nature and his works. There is such a store of everything good and holy and lovely in God that he can only be glorious. Gloriousness is in his character. It's who he is. And therefore, the actions which flow from him are also glorious. But while he intends that his work should display his goodness, his power, and his mercy, he is equally concerned that the glory associated with these acts should be given to him alone. All of creation is glorious. We, the pinnacle of his creation, are also glorious. Yet glory is not due to us or to any of creation. There is nothing in ourselves that we should glory in. Glory is due only to our Creator. How careful then should we be to walk humbly before our Lord? The moment we glorify ourselves, we set ourselves up as rivals to the Most High. To do so is like a daisy glorifying itself against the sun which brought it into life. Like the dust of the field striving against the tornado. Like the drops of ocean water struggling against the hurricane. It is the clay bowl exalting itself over the potter who fashioned it. All of this is nonsense and yet perhaps one of the most difficult struggles for us. We are prone to self-exaltation. It is hard for us to live according to the verse from Psalms. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give the glory. It is a lesson which God will always be teaching us, teaching us sometimes through painful discipline. Let any of us live in such a way as to boast, I can do all things, without adding, through Christ who strengthens me. And before long, we will lament ourselves in the dust and only groan, I can do nothing. Whenever we find anything good or beautiful in ourselves, let us be quick to praise the giver of all good things. Whenever our senses should partake of the Lord's good pleasures, let words of thankfulness to him be fast upon our lips. Whenever we do anything for the Lord and he is pleased to accept our doings, let us lay our crown at his feet and exclaim, It was not I, but the grace of God who is with me. God's word reminds us of our sins and our need for confession. If you are willing and able, please kneel with me as we confess our sins. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, Lord. Without your word, we would be blind and stumbling around in the dark. We wouldn't know the way of salvation. We wouldn't know how to honor you, and we wouldn't know the path of life. So thank you for blessing us with your word. Please soften our hearts now and make our hearts receptive uh, to what your word says to us. Help us to believe what we are about to hear, and help us to not only assent to it intellectually, but to... Uh, obey it, Lord. We pray that this, will, this truth will transform how we live our lives, that we would be sanctified through the word you have given us. Please help me also as your under-shepherd 
to faithfully feed your flock. Don't let me get in the way, Lord. And I pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. You know, we are very blessed as a people, and I don't need to tell you that. I don't believe. And what I mean by that is that God has given us great prosperity. In the history of the world, no nation, no society has known the wealth that we know. Even our poor people have Xboxes, all right? You've never seen a society like that before. And that means we've received God's favor, and that's something we should give thanks to God for. We should thank Him that none of us here are starving. None of us here are wondering where we're going to get our next meal, or whether or not we're going to have enough food to feed the family next week. As far as I know, that's not a concern for any of the families here. I hope not. And so while we should thank God for that prosperity, it's something else that we have to be mindful of in this. And it's the lesson we're going to learn in James this morning. And that is, even though we receive great prosperity from God's hand, and we should give Him thanks for that, we need to hold that prosperity in an open hand. Because for those who have been granted with prosperity, that prosperity becomes the the greatest potential stumbling block to their perseverance in the faith. Because we also know that we not only have great, great prosperity, but we also live in a day and age that is increasingly opposed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do you think our enemy is going to threaten in order to get us to compromise, in order to get us to betray our Lord. What's he going to threaten? He is going to threaten our prosperity. He is going to threaten our comfort, our wealth. So we have to be willing, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, and especially in this day and age, we have to be willing to let go of that wealth if the Lord calls upon us to do so. And don't understand me to be saying, that's going to happen. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a prophet. But we also have to be aware of the times in which we live. And we have to be aware of the devil and his schemes. And we have to be aware of our own hearts and, and their weaknesses. And we know we love our prosperity and we love our comfort. And so as we're going to learn this morning from James, we must not set our affections on the wealth of this world. Our affections have to be set upon what is above. We have to love God in order to persevere. Please listen carefully to what the Spirit of God says to us through His servant James. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, In the original setting that James was addressing in the churches he was writing to, it's very apparent that favoritism toward the rich was an ongoing problem among those churches. And we see that especially in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 13 where James spends a lot of time reprimanding the church for the favoritism that was being demonstrated toward the wealthy. And he addresses that concern at greater depth in only a few paragraphs. 
So we can read these verses really as a preface to his teaching in chapter 2, in that first part of chapter 2 in verses 1 through 13. And it may be, we're not sure of course, but it may be that the poor among them largely were poor because of being persecuted by the wealthy. You have to remember that he was writing to Jewish converts to Christianity, and because they had converted to Christianity, that may have led to their impoverishment. It may have meant that their families, their neighbors would know, their Jewish neighbors would no longer do business with them, and so on and so forth. Perhaps they were disinherited, and so they were now impoverished because of their faith. And so, of course, when the wealthy would come into the church, though, as we are still prone to do in this day, when the wealthy would come into the church, they'd be given the places of honor, and the, the leaders would dance to the tune the wealthy were playing. You know, I once, I'm not kidding, this is a true story, I once worked under a pastor who sat me down in his office and told me that I should never do anything to upset the wealthy people in the church because they uh, pay for your salary, so you want to keep them happy no matter what. He told me this and kept a straight face. He, he was serious when he said that to me. I didn't last long at that, at that church, I, not long at all. So that mentality is still present in, in the world today and in the church, unfortunately, and, and we need to guard our, our hearts against that tendency to favor the rich. But I'm not going to get into that now because that's really chapter two, but it's worth noting. Now, I also want to make another comment as we're talking about the rich and the poor because I think in our society today, which has become very progressive, which is really an oxymoron, but that's the word they use, in our society there's a sense in which the rich are viewed as being inherently selfish and evil because the only way you get rich is by being selfish and evil. And if you're poor, you're, being, you're viewed as... You, a being virtuous person, right? Poor is a virtue in the thinking of our society largely. That is not James's point here. Scripture never teaches that being poor on its own is a virtue unto itself. And also, Scripture never teaches that being rich is inherently wicked or sinful. Not at all. What's, what is a, a, the danger, as we're going to learn as we work our way through the text this morning, the danger is for wealthy people to set their affection upon their wealth. And the danger actually is the same for those who are poor, for the poor to become greedy for riches so that they are deformed and twisted by their desire for wealth. So being poor is not virtuous in and of itself, and being wealthy is not virtuous in and of itself. As long as your heart attitude toward God is correct, as long as your affections are set on him. So James's point in this passage is not to say, hey, rich people, poor people are better than you. So get with the program. That's not his point at all. He is not saying that it is better to be poor than rich, everything else being equal. Of course, it is always better to be poor and have Christ than to be rich without him. But again, that's not exactly... James's point here. Now, it is apparent as we look at the broader context of what's going on in the book of James that the wealthy who are in the church, and it's not clear whether or not these wealthy people were actually professing believers or if they were wealthy Jews who were visiting the church to see what was going on. 
uh, because they were behaving like unbelievers to a large extent. And their persecution of the, of the believers of the, con- of the congregations, dragging them off the court and so on and so forth. So we're not quite clear exactly on whether or not these wealthy folks visiting the church were believers or not. It's not clear, but it is clear that they were boasting in their riches and they did not object to being favored over their more poorer brothers. They were presumptuous. They believed, the wealthy people who were involved with the churches James was writing to, they actually believed that their wealth made them superior to the poor of the church. And so they welcomed being favored. They welcomed the places of honor. They thought to themselves, apparently, I deserve that. Why? Because I'm wealthy. And you know, prosperity has a tendency to breed self-righteousness. It really does. Prosperity has a tendency to breed self-righteousness. Do you know why? Because it gives us a false sense of self-sufficiency. We think to ourselves, well, I have money. I have wealth. I'm well cared for. God must love me. I must be a righteous person. I'm doing okay. I'm a good person because I'm so well cared for. See, when you have prosperity, it's easy to hide from your sin. It's easy to hide from your fallenness. Not so easy to do that when you're poor. And these wealthy people that were attending these churches James was writing to needed a dose of reality. They needed to be taken down a notch because they were high on their horse. They were full of presumption, full of self-righteousness and entitlement. And James is here putting them in their place saying, "Who, who do you think you are? You do not see reality as it truly is. You need a reality check. Stop boasting in your riches. Now to get James's point, we really must read verses 9 through 11 in light of verse 12. His point is that in the end, both the poor and the rich man, regardless of their, their status in society, regardless of their worldly wealth, they are in the end, striving for the same prize, the crown of life. Both the poor man and the rich man. That's what we're striving for. Doesn't matter what the size of your bank account, so on and so forth. That's the prize we're going for. And that, that fact that we're all striving for the crown of life, that has an equalizing effect upon the poor and the rich. They look very different from the world's perspective, but when you recognize Both the poor and the rich are striving for the same goal. It equalizes them in a sense. The promise of the crown of life exalts the lowly brother. How does it exalt the lowly brother? This is what James tells us here. Well, it exalts the lowly brother, the one who is poor, because it reminds him, it promises him, that even though materially speaking, in terms of earthly wealth, he may be poor in this life, in eternity he will receive that glorious crown, a reward with which earthly riches cannot even begin to compare. So even though he may be impoverished and lower than low on this side of eternity, in eternity when he receives that crown of life, he will become a prince. He will become the very royalty of heaven who is honored among God's people. And you know, that's an encouraging thought. That's an encouraging thought for me because I I believe that there are so many 
unsung, unknown heroes of the faith in our world that we don't know anything about because they are poor, because they live in third world nations, and they're under the radar, and no one's ever heard their name because they live their lives quietly, serving the Lord selflessly, living in poverty, and yet they are giants of the faith. But I can tell you this, in eternity, you will know their names. You will know their names. And they'll be greater than us. And when they walk by, and they're greater than we are, we'll give glory to God for what he has accomplished in them. I look forward to that. I can't wait to see the uncovering of the heroes of the faith that we know nothing about today. And that's how the lowly are exalted in the crown of life. Because they're nothing like what Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1. What were many of you were nothing in the eyes of the world, but God shows the things that are not, the things that are despised in order to shame the wise. And what a day that will be when the lowly are exalted and honored above all others. It'll be a sight to behold. So the crown of life exalts the lowly brother. However, it also humiliates the rich brother. His pursuit of the crown of life humiliates the rich brother. How does it humiliate him? Because all of his earthly wealth, all of his earthly status, which is fading away, can do nothing to secure that crown for him. It doesn't matter how much money he has. It doesn't matter whether or not he's an alpha male and a captain of industry in this world. That matters nothing to the king of kings. It will not buy him the crown of life. The Lord Jesus will not look at his uh, resume or his portfolio when it comes to awarding that crown. Not at all. And that humiliates the rich man. The rich man has to admit to himself that in eternity... My wealth on its own will not matter because it will be gone. It'll be gone. It'll be nothing. Everything I build in this life will be dust. Now, there's an important qualification to make there. We learn it in Matthew 6 where our Lord says to take our money and use it to store up treasure in heaven. So it is possible if you have wealth to use it to acquire glory in the life to come. If you use it with a pure heart for the glory of God. So I don't mean to say to you that wealthy people are all going to be humiliated and the scrubs of the earth in eternity. It's not what I'm saying. It's important to recognize, though, that the things that give a wealthy person status and prominence in this life will not give it to them in the next. You cannot purchase, you cannot buy eternal life. So the facts that James is getting at here, the truth he's getting at, is that the terms for attaining the crown of life are the same for both the poor and the rich brother. That's why I refer to the equalizing effects the crown of life has. Whether you're poor or whether you're rich, the conditions for attaining that crown are the same. And what, what is the condition for attaining the crown of life. Remember this, saints. This is critical. You can't follow Jesus unless you know what I'm about to tell you. The condition for attaining the crown of life is perseverance. Perseverance. You must remain steadfast under trial. And this, what I'm about to say, is worth writing down. Persevering is what matters most in this life. Persevering is what matters most in this life if you are a Christian. 
through every trial you face. James says this to us in this verse. He talks about perseverance. In verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. What does it mean to stand the test? James talks about that here. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. What does it mean to stand the test? It means to be proven genuine. That's what it means to stand the test. To be proven genuine. The word in the Greek is dokimos, and it referred to precious metals being proven to be genuine. Pure gold is pure gold. Silver is silver. You're testing it to make sure that you're not being taken advantage of. It was the process by which their, genu- their authenticity was verified. So the point of testing is to show that our love for God is genuine. That's why our faith is subjected to testing and trial. To show that our love for God is the real thing. And not merely lip service. We, we see God lamenting that about Israel under the Old Covenant. Their lips are close. They, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their love for God was not genuine. So notice what the connection that James makes in verse 12. The crown of life is promised to whom? Who is it promised to? It is promised to those who love God. Promised to those who love God. Love for God is what God is looking for in you and in me. That's what he wants to see in us, brothers and sisters. Love for him. Love for him. It because it is our love for God that leads us to persevere. If you're going to stand fast under trial, you can only do so if you love God. So if you intend to persevere in the faith, you must learn to love Him. And we have to make that connection between love for God and perseverance. Only those who truly love God and have set their affections upon Him above all others will persevere. And that's how you know who truly knows the Lord. Because they love Him. And you know that they love Him because they persevere until the end. They endure to the end. They do not fall away because they are seduced by the empty promises of this world. They remain true to God who has their complete loyalty. Here's a model for every Christian. Loyalty before wealth. Loyalty before wealth. What's that mean? It means I will abandon everything I have to my name in order to remain loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even if it impoverishes me to the point of death, I will remain loyal to Him. This is why the Lord Jesus tells us very plainly that unless we love Him more than even our own families, what is more precious to a man or to a woman than their families, by the way? Nothing. That unless we love Him more than even our own families, we cannot even begin to follow Him unless we have greater love for Him. That's what it requires. That is the, those are the terms of discipleship. Those are the terms of calling yourself a Christian. That is what you are signing up for when you recite the Nicene Creed and say, I believe that. I believe that. I love Jesus more than these people sitting here with me. I love him more than all the wealth I have. 
Is that true for you? Do you love him more? We have to take note of the significance of what the Spirit is saying to us here. God does not promise the crown of life to those who try the hardest. It's not about works. Amen? It's not about works. It's not of ourselves. We know it's all of the grace of God. Christ purchased your perseverance on the cross. You have to remember that. Perseverance is not something we add to the equation to keep the ball of salvation rolling. When Christ said, it is finished, he has secured every blessing granted to you by God when you become a believer. And that includes the gift of persevering faith. And never allow anyone to tell you otherwise. Ever. But God does not promise your crown of life to those who try the hardest. If you try to persevere by your own strength, you are going to fail. He does not promise the crown of life to those who are the best and the brightest. He does not promise the crown to those who live the most upright and moral lives. Because those people who think they're living moral and upright lives, and they tell themselves, I'm moral and upright, they're as self-deceived as the wealthy people that James was writing to. Because they don't recognize their own depravity and sin. That doesn't mean you have to walk around and say, I'm guilty of every sin under the sun. It means you have to say, apart from the grace of God, there is no morality in me and there is nothing upright about me. The only righteousness I possess has been given to me as a gift through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God does not promise the crown to those, all right, reformed men and, and, and ladies, he does not promise the crown to those who are the most doctrinally precise. We have to remember that. We have to remember that. There is a difference between loving God and having good doctrine. Always remember that. It is possible to have wonderful doctrine and to wear that on your lapel and yet be as, a, as much of a stranger to Christ as Satan is. Remember that. He certainly does not promise the crown to those who give the most money. He promises the crown to those who love him. Do you see the difference? Let's talk about the difference. You may possess all of the other qualities I mentioned to you, and yet still be lacking in love for God. And we are given a very painful example of what I'm talking about in the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 19 and verses 16 through 30. That's where our Lord has interaction with the, the young man whom we've come to know as the rich young ruler. Now if you remember the rich young ruler, when he came up to Jesus... For all intents and purposes, he appeared to be a godly young man. Many of us with daughters would look at him and say, well, he's a suitable husband. He keeps God's law. He has a great upbringing, honors his parents. I mean, this is what he told Jesus anyway. I've kept the law since I was little. Wow, I can't say that, can you? And he was wealthy. We know that. What more could you ask for? He was probably a doctor too. On top of it, it doesn't say that, right? He was ideal, perfect. But our Lord knew better, like he knows us better. 
So here's this young man, perfect white teeth, great credentials, great upbringing, seems to love God, asking about eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, we often tell ourselves, well, if you're worried about it, that means you're really a believer. No, it doesn't mean that. Just because you're worried about going to heaven doesn't mean your faith is real. We see that in the example of the rich young ruler. He was worried about it too. But what do we learn about him? Our Lord knew his heart. And our Lord knew what he really loved. And that's why he said to that rich young man, all right, you've kept the law. And you know under his breath the Lord's going, yeah, right. But he said, okay, he granted it (laughs) for sake of argument. And he tells that young man, all right, then go sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and come follow me. You know what the Lord was saying to that young man? Love me more than you love your wealth. That's what it costs to follow me. Love me more than you love your wealth. And there was that young man with all of his respectability, with all of his religiosity, with all of his apparent holiness. And what did he do? He went home. He went home hanging his head. Why? Because he had great wealth. And at that point, he could not bring himself to part with it. Saints, do you realize, do you realize how easily that description could fit any one of us sitting here in this room right now? We're at church. We're concerned for good doctrine. We're concerned for God's law. We sing the psalms. We want to hear the preaching of the word. We're concerned about inheriting eternal life. And yet, what's the content of our hearts? This is the question we have to ask ourselves. Do we love the Lord or do we love our prosperity, our wealth, our comfort more than him? How do we guard ourselves against such hypocrisy? We have to do as James instructs us, brothers and sisters. The poor brother must rejoice in his exaltation and the rich brother must rejoice in his humiliation. This protects us from the love of mammon, from the love of earthly wealth, and that which is a direct threat to perseverance. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says to us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, whether you have it or not, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is, listen to what he says, saints. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pains. It is through this craving that many have failed to persevere. Why? Because they were just like the rich young ruler. They loved their wealth more than they loved God. i got to tell you, I think this is the number one cause of unfaithfulness on behalf of professing Christians in this day and age. We don't want to sacrifice our prosperity, our comfort, our stability, 
And so we will not be faithful to Christ. We try to find a middle way. We try to find a way to call ourselves Christian and compromise at the same time so as not to rock the boat. You have to understand, people who have prosperity don't like to rock the boat. Do you know why? Because that threatens instability. And in their minds, if you bring instability, you're going to threaten the situation that has made them prosperous. And they don't want to do that. They want to keep their prosperity. And yet, to be a follower of Christ, you have to rock the boat. You have to preach the truth, which means you have to be willing to give up that prosperity in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So for the poor brother, they must be content with what God has given them in order to guard themselves against the love of money. That's a good lesson for all of us to remember. Be content with what God has given you. For the rich brother, boast in your humiliation. You are going to fade away. I am going to fade away. All the prosperity and wealth we now have, we are going to lose. This is what Charles Spurgeon says. Whatever God gives you, he may soon take away from you. If he takes it not away, he may take away your power to enjoy it. (laughs) It is poor, slippery stuff at the very best. I am not saying to you, don't work hard to expand the kingdom in this world. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, do that without setting your affections on this world. You have to work hard planning for the future for the sake of the kingdom while keeping your mind, as Paul says in Colossians 3, keeping your mind firmly set on that which is up above. I am motivated not by the love of this world. I am motivated by the love of God. That is why I work hard. Listen to what Paul says to the wealthy in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. I think this is probably more fitting for us than his instruction to the poor. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That is our calling, brothers and sisters, to use the prosperity God has given us for the sake of his kingdom and giving it freely because we do not love it. We love him. Go out from here and persevere in the faith. Show your love for God to be genuine and set your affection on that which is above, not on the things of this earth. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for bearing with us. We are slow to learn, and yet you are very gracious and increasingly patient with us. Lord, help us to hear what your servant James has said to us, to realize that we cannot hang on to our worldly wealth. Help us not to set our affections upon it, but to give you thanks for that which we have. But help us, Lord, to keep our love, our affections, our mind set upon you in the world that is to come, not upon the world as it truly is, Father. 
So as we work in this world, as we invest, as we look to the future for the sake of your kingdom, help us to do so with the, pro- with the proper perspective, with the eternal perspective, Lord, so that we may not be led astray. Help us to love you above all else so that we might receive the crown of life. And we ask you to teach us how we should pray as our Lord taught his disciples here on earth. this morning was Psalm 29.2. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. In the exhortation, we're reminded that it is God alone to whom glory is to be given and of our struggle to fulfill this mandate. Also in the gospel reading this morning, we read from Luke, the parable Jesus told to the Pharisees about taking the seat of highest honor. He concluded the parable by saying, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. God, our Creator, God, our Savior, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the only true and living God, and He alone is to be exalted. And here at this table, He is glorified. When we partake together the bread and the wine, we remember the glorious work of God in saving us through His Son, Jesus Christ, and we proclaim Him as the resurrected Lord, the only Savior of man, and the King of all kings. But at this table... We too are exalted. When we come humbly to this meal, we are those who are seated in the lowest place. And he who invited us here says to us, friend, go up higher. Like Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, we are lowly and crippled, and yet we are given a lasting place at the king's table. It is here that both God and man are exalted, and this is accomplished only through the grace of our God. So brothers and sisters, Come to the table of our Lord. Come and exalt him who has raised us up through Jesus Christ. Christ's body broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.